0: One's attitude is uh, fundamentally important for the success of whatever endeavor that you find yourself trying to do. It could be in your business, it could be in sports, it could be in uh, some hobby that you are endeavoring to do. Uh, Certainly in family life, attitude is very important. And obviously, being a Christian, being a member of Christ's body, Christ's church, attitude is fundamentally important. And that's our study tonight, is to talk about attitudes. We have six verses to look at that gives us two lists. Part one, we'll be looking at bad attitudes. Part two, we'll be looking at good attitudes. I appreciate uh, the presence of all. I'm happy to be here, and certainly always a privilege to assemble, to worship, and to uh, be encouraged in, in spiritual matters as we study together. You see, the verses before us, we will read them and kind of get those in our mind as we begin our study here tonight. Paul says, For I fear, lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I should be found unto you such as you would not, lest there be debates, enviance, wrath, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, and tumults." Then we turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We notice the first three verses. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all holiness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And Then the last two verses, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you, And so there we have six verses, and we have two lists to look at. And so we've got a lot of ground to cover. There's a lot of attitudes that are talked about as we study here. First part, bad attitudes. You know, you study in the scriptures like in the book of Colossians and other passages where it says, Put off! And then he gives a list of various things to put off. Well, these are attitudes to put off. They are destructive and they are not very beneficial uh, to our life and to success in living, living as a Christian and in family life or whatever. And then we'll be talking about the good attitudes and these are the things that God would have us to put on. All right, first off, as we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, the King James uses the word debates. It is the ideal of strife or contention or quarrels as you look at other verses. You know, Jude said in verse 3 that we should earnestly contend for the faith. So there's a difference between contending for truth and righteousness and being contentious. And that's what Paul's talking about here in this bad attitude, being contentious. It is the idea of discord, of fussing, just like to be in an argument just for the argument's sake. Like to argue that it's, uh, yeah, you know, the walls are white when obviously the walls are not white. I mean, there's just some people, they, they like a good argument. He's not talking about honorable debating in the sense of a... a, a um, A uh, public discussion where a proposition is signed. You have an affirmative and a negative. Not talking about that. you got passages like Acts chapter 19 where Paul went into the synagogue and for three months he was disputing. And then after they shunned the truth, then he went to the school of Tyrannus and for two years he was disputing. That is, to speak diversely. If you look up the word disputing, it's ideal to speak diversely. That is, he goes into the synagogue. Jesus is the Messiah. The Jew says no, Paul says yes, that's, that, that is legitimate, and we of course come into those kinds of conflicts all the time. But this idea of debating that is described here, being contentious, is just being argumentative for the sake of being argumentative. Maybe jumping into those foolish and unlearned questions that Paul talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 23. Maybe you want to get into some big discussion about who wrote the book of Hebrews. And you spend 15 minutes of the Bible class time and at the end you still don't know because we don't know the answer to that. Well, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Well, some says it's bad eyesight. Somebody says this, somebody says that. I don't know. It was something in the flesh because he says it was a thorn in the flesh. But we don't know. And again, why spend 20 minutes of a Bible class period trying to figure that out when there is really no answer, why should we even discuss and be contentious about a question such as that? Then Paul goes on, and he talks about envying. Some translation says jealousy. Many times in the scriptures, jealousy and envy, they are twisted sisters. Sometimes they're used as mere synonyms, that is, they both mean the same thing, used as similar meanings. And sometimes the words are used together, and there is some distinction between the two. Jealousy and envy both carry the flavor of the ideal that I'm uncomfortable when good befalls you. If you come up driving a new automobile to services and I'm driving around, you know, a 2000 uh, or 1997 Ford uh, pickup truck, well, how should I feel? You know, I'm driving an old vehicle and you you got this shiny new car. Well, should I be discontent? Should I be unhappy about that? Well, of course not. Don't need to be jealous. Don't need to be envious about that. Just be happy for you. In fact, I like it when Rather than drive new vehicles, could you go out and make over it and, and kind of brag on it and say, can I set in? And, yeah, you can set in. And then you can just look at all these sh- how everything's shiny and clean. And I love the smell of the new car. I don't know about you, but I love the smell of the new car. And you can just set in it uh, and they'll let you sit in it and uh, just enjoy that new car aroma. And, you know, the great thing about that is you only have to make a payment on it. I mean, it's wonderful. So we should be happy because somebody drives a new car, they've got more money, they've got new clothes, they're a better Bible class teacher, they're a more accomplished song leader. We'll just be happy that they're using their blessings in the service of the Lord. And jealous in envy. We don't need any of that. If somebody has a million bucks, that doesn't make them better. It just means they've got a million responsibilities. That's all that means. It doesn't make them any better than anybody else. And so there's no need for jealousy and envy. You read about that in the Scriptures. Joseph's brothers were envious and sold him into slavery and caused a lot of heartache in his family. The Jews were envious over Jesus because throngs of people were listening to him. And because of envy, they delivered him unto Pilate. And Pilate was perceptive enough to figure that out. And so it is, of course, a bad attitude. Envy is the rottenness of the bones, Proverbs 14 and verse 30 Bad attitude, get rid of it. Be happy when good befalls somebody else. And then he talks about wrath. And you look in the Ephesian account, there in verse 31, he also talks about anger. Again, these are two words that are used many times as synonyms. Wrath, anger, they're used uh, interchangeably. But then, when you look at the Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, they're used together. There must be some distinction. I've asked people, well, what's the difference between wrath and anger, and well, you get all kinds of answers on that. But really, the easiest explanation to distinguish between the wrath and anger when they're used together is like uh, if we could illustrate burning leaves. I, I don't can, can you burn leaves in Pulaski County in the fall? I don't, I don't know. Okay, some counties outlaw it. Louisville outlaws it, and I think some of the big cities. But in Rock we 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 can do it. Uh, uh, well, after after October, you have to do it after 6 o'clock in the evening. But but anyway, if you get a pile of leaves from your trees, and if they're a little damp, well, how do they burn? Well, they burn kind of slow. And if they're real dry, they burn real fast. And that's what the, the difference I see in anger and wrath when they're used together. Both of them talking about getting mad. But sometimes it means just to flare up. And we just we just burn with anger, and then, well, it's over by... Just a little while. And then sometimes people get mad. I mean, they get a mad on that lasts for days. I mean, sometimes it's weeks. Sometimes it's months and years. I mean, they're still mad about, oh, I remember back in 2005 when all so-and-so did. And they're still mad about it. They're still upset about it. And both of them, of course, as talking about bad attitudes... You've got to think about passages like Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, where it says, uh, Be angry and sin not. Now, it is possible to have a righteous indignation, a righteous anger. The Bible does talk about that. Mark 3 and verse 5, Jesus looked around about with anger, and that is legitimate of some injustice, unrighteousness being done. But as Paul goes on to say, Be angry and sin not. Too often we get mad, we get upset. And then we sin. Sometimes, well, we think bad things. Sometimes we say horrible things. We say mean things. We say hurtful things. And we're going to give somebody peace of our mind. The problem is you go around giving peace, peace of your mind. Every time you get mad, Is for long you won't have any mind at all. That's the problem with that. And so what we need to do without anger and wrath, well, we need to work on that. And as Paul says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. We need to get that settled in our hearts and minds and get that rectified and deal with it. So we have to be careful. Sometimes it's legitimate and sometimes, well, we're not really justified in it and it leads to bad things. And then he talks about strife. Now this word strife is an interesting term. One translation says factions. It has the idea of the party spirit. It carries the flavor of politics, the political ideal. And it's the idea of of the selfish ambition that, uh, that somebody that's political, you know, they're thinking about who? Well, they're thinking about them and their campaign and just winning. Not really concerned about what's best for the country, what's best for society, what's best for the city, what's best for the town. It's more what's best for me and my political future. And that's the flavor of this term. And sometimes we get into that kind of spirit. That we begin thinking about in a selfish manner and then we begin to campaign for my ideals and, my, uh, and the things that I want. And, well, that's not the flavor. That's not what Christ would want. He wants His cause to always come first of what is best. And so that's another one of those bad dispositions. Paul talks about it also there in Philippians chapter 1. People who were, who were, uh, uh, who, who were preaching Christ just to try, try, to, try, try to cause trouble, uh, upon Paul, uh, for him. Everybody talking about Paul, Paul, Paul. And so they were kind of, uh, out preaching with the bad motives there. And then we have backbitings and whisperings that are mentioned. And if you look at the Ephesian passage, it talks about evil speaking. Now, if you look at some other translations, you'll have maybe gossip or slander. And all these words, really, they are very similar. There's a little bit of distinction between each of them, but really it all deals with slander and gossiping. Slander and gossiping, evil speaking, defamation, speaking words of defamation, that we have it in for somebody and so we speak words of defamation. Backbiting is sort of slandering behind somebody's back. Gossiping behind somebody's back. Whispering is sort of that secretive type of slander and gossip and innuendo of character assassination is the flavor. And when you look at all these terms and you talk about that you gossip or slander Generally, a lot of times, it is something that is false, or part truth and part false. But not always. There are a couple of instances where truth is actually spoken. But in slander and gossip, there is always a malicious intent that is involved in slander and gossip. And that is what is talked about in these passages when it talks about backbiting and whispering. That we're wanting to harm somebody, we're trying to throw off on somebody, we're trying to put down somebody. And we always have that malicious intent, even if it's something that is true, if we put an evil slant on it and we have malicious intent, it is described as gossip. It is described as slander and evil speaking and it is to be put away. Because when we talk about somebody, number one, we need to say, we need to see well, is it true what we're saying? And then we would ask the question: Well, is it necessary? Is it kind? Is it beneficial? What's the motive? Why am I talking about this? And yeah, sometimes we have to talk about things to try to help folks in discussing situations. I, I understand that. But if we have that malicious intent, that's slander. Whether we do it kind of secretly or whispering or backbiting. It's all part of uh, the list of bad attitudes. Then the King James uses the word swelling. The idea of swellings is the idea of uh, arrogance, being puffed up, conceit. That is to get you get too big for your britches. You begin to think too 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 lofty of yourself of your talents, of your looks, of your intelligence, of your money, whatever it might be that we become conceited about, and we sort of get the big head that somehow we are better than somebody else. Nobody's, anybody, nobody's better than anybody else. I mean, aren't we all on inequality? I mean, let me list five things that shows why we should never have the big head about any fellow human being. Well, number one, we're all made in the image of God. Isn't that so? Sure, we're all made in the image of God. We've all sinned to come short of the glory of God. I mean, can somebody say, hey, no, hey, don't put me in that book. Don't, don't, don't lump me in. Don't lump me in that group because I haven't ever sinned. No, we have all said. Salvation is offered to everybody. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. Isn't that right? I mean, does anybody just sort of elevate and they just yank them pants on real quick? No, we put them on one leg at a time. And we're all going to be buried four feet under used to be six feet under, but now it's about four feet under. We're all going to be buried four feet under. That puts us all on an equal plateau. So why am I better than anybody else? Or why are you better than anybody else? We're all equal. And what's the difference between people in the church and people out in the world? Does that make us better because we're in the church and they're not? No. The difference is those folks are sinners and we're sinners that have been forgiven. They're, they're in need of forgiveness. And so we ought to look with great compassion and great understanding and not feel that somehow that we're better than somebody else. We've just been forgiven. We've, we've come to the knowledge of truth and we have the responsibility to help them. And so we should never feel puffed up and swell in our head like somehow we're better than anybody else. Because we're not. But through Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed and we ought to be eternally grateful for that. And then Talmud. Don't hear that word a lot. Seen it this past year in some of the rioting that goes on, that's the idea of torment, is the idea of a disturbance. That is, people get all trumped up. I, I, I remember the, 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 when those police officers got killed down in Dallas. Man, to me, that was crazy. Because they were down there protesting about something that took place, I think it was in Wisconsin and Louisiana, and they're in the city of Dallas protesting, and they're taking it out on policemen in Dallas, and they had nothing to do with it. I mean, isn't that crazy? And then everybody just jumps on the bandwagon, and people, a lot of these riots that got, got started this past year, all these people, they, hey, there's a riot going on. Man, they just hop on a bus or hop on a plane or hop in the car and just go and join it to be involved in the torment in the rioting, in the disturbance that's going on. And one thing that the Romans were pretty perceptive of, if you look at that case in Acts chapter 19, when there was a tumult a kind of a riot starting, the Romans, they did not look very favorably upon that. Because knowing human nature, when you get people in a kind of a riot situation, in this unlawful assembly... Well, people sort to get carried away, and emotion begin running high. Next thing you know, thing, bad things, begin to take place, and so they frowned upon it. And so the idea of tumult causing disturbances. I mean, it could happen in the church. We're going to change the carpet. We don't like the color of the carpet, and everybody wants red, and I don't want purple. Well, should I cause a, a, a disturbance over that? Kind of like a congregation every one time, they, they had a problem with the roof. They were going to have to replace it. And some of the brethren, they wanted shingle roof and some wanted metal roof because they just loved to hear the sound of rain falling on the metal roof. I think they finally decided to do half with shingles and half with metal. Isn't that crazy? Why, why would you cause a disturbance over that? But that uh, sometimes happens and that's the flavor of the term. It's a bad attitude. All these are bad attitudes to have. And then Ephesians talks about uh, the word bitterness. Bitterness is uh, just anything that is bitter. I mean, you ever had anything that tasted bitter, like bite into a persimmon that's not ripe? It's real bitter. It's very repugnant and you, oh, oh, oh. It's sort of like uh, you take a pill. You know, a lot of medicine, if you take it, if you don't get it swallowed down, it begins to dissolve in your mouth. It's, a lot of medicine just bitter. Oh, it's awful. And you finally just wash it down after it starts dissolving in your mouth. Well, that's the flavor of the term bitterness. And sometimes folks have a bitter disposition, a bitter attitude. And various things can cause that. Why people have bitterness, but certainly no justification for it. An interesting text over in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, as we talk about bitterness, notice there in number 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The problem is, if I become bitter, it's not just me that's affected, then the people that I'm around, and what I say with. It sort of falls upon other people. They sometimes will suffer because of bitter attitude, bitter disposition. It's kind of like a a cloud hovering over you. Everything looks gloom and doom. And so we have this gloom and doom, bitter disposition about life, about uh, everything that's happening in life, about my life, about what's happening in church, what's happening in the country. And we are just so bitter all the time. And it's really misfortune. Don't we have anything to be thankful for, to be glad for? I mean, isn't there anything positive that we can look around and see at least something that's good that's going on? Surely there could be some good things that we could be thinking about that we could be happy and be thankful for instead of being bitter about everything that's happening round about. Surely there are many things to be thankful for. And then we have the word clamor. Clamor. It literally means the idea of a crying out. Ah, oh, for crying out loud and we just complain about something. Paul talks about Philippians 2 and verse 14, Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Well, the murmuring is sort of kind of the quiet clamoring, kind of the low-muttered complaining. And then the uh, disputing is this the flavor of the term complaining, that we're crying out and complaining. We just complain about everything. Complain about the price of gasoline. Complain about the price of uh, of uh, food. Complain about uh, uh, you know it's too cold. It's too hot. It's too sunny. It's too cloudy. I mean, do we ever say anything positive and, and and glad about things? It's like snow. I'm not a big snow fan. Well, I I am. I do I do like one thing about snow. What well, two things about snow? It's really pretty. I mean, everything in all white, especially when it sticks to the trees. It's, it's very beautiful. And the second thing is, I like snow cream. I made snow cream today, right after lunch. Go out right there and scoop me up a bowl of snow, pour some milk, and sugar, and vanilla, and stir it up, and have snow cream. That's kind of a redeeming factor of snow in Kentucky, is you get to make snow cream. But, you know, we don't need to complain and grumble and gripe about everything that's going on under the sun in our lives. And to clamor, it's just kind of a bad attitude. Well, it says, do all things without murmuring and disputing. And then he talks about malice. Malice is a term that means ill will. The other thing is that when you have malice in your heart, You can't have love in your heart because the fundamental definition of love is goodwill. So how can you have ill will, malice, and love, goodwill? I mean, that's contradictory, one against another. So you can't really have both. You can't have malice and you can't have love. You see, when ill will enters, goodwill must exit. You can't have them both at the same time. It's like, you know, having iced hot coffee. That's contradictory. It's going to be hot, it's going to be cold, or it could be lukewarm, but you can't have them both. Well, ladies and gentlemen, when you talk about malice, ill will, it's a, it's a bad attitude. We should have ill will toward none because the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that includes everybody because anybody is potentially a neighbor that is one who is nigh. And that's the ideal of neighbor, one who is nigh, but that's potentially everybody. So we're to have goodwill toward all people. So no room for malice. Oh, made an interesting statement there in the book of First uh, Corinthians, fourteen, and number twenty on this matter of ma- on this uh, matter this uh, concept of, of malice. He says, Brethren, be not children in understanding; howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be ye men." You ever notice little kids? They don't run around with a chip on their shoulder, having ill will toward folks. Oh, sometimes kids get in a fuss and they may be mad. And it's like, you know, they never speak to Johnny again. He made me so mad. And then half hour later, they're the best buds going, you know, and they're back to playing. And kids just don't have malice. You just watch the little children. They, they'll run around with malice and ill will in their hearts. And so you look at all these bad attitudes. And there's a bunch of them. And every single one of them are destructive. And they will hurt ourselves. That anger and wrath reminds me of the story about somebody that got mad and upset. There was a it was a teacher, and anyway she just got mad and upset. And instead of you know being having a forgiving heart that we're going to talk about, she was mad, mad for years over it. And anyway, she was supposed to be graded and I don't know, the principal gives grades to teachers and their performance and and she didn't get the score that she thought and so she was really upset. And then this principal, he moved to another part of the state and it's like, you know, she just really upset her and she just never really did go talk to him but she just harbored those feelings in her heart for a long time and then they had some sort of state convention and she's seen this fella we will just say Mr. Jones, and he thought, she thought to herself, I'm going to go talk to Mr. Jones about what happened ten years ago. And she walks up to him and says, Mr. Jones, do you remember me? He goes, uh, no, I don't remember you. She's out there having all these feelings and being upset for ten years, and you don't even remember it. So you see, when we talk about bad attitudes, the people that we hurt the worst is ourselves, first and foremost. And then sometimes we hurt others. So bad attitudes, get rid of them. They're, they're not constructive, they're just detrimental in every way. And then we turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And there are several good attitudes that are manifested, that are talked about, and that are described in our text. First off, in the King James, I like the word uh, the word uh, the King James uses there. He says, uh, I therefore the prison of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. vocation. Other translation says calling. Vocation is a good word. There are actually three words that would be similar. Vocation, vacation, advocation. Advocation is kind of a hobby, something you do on the side. You just do it occasionally. Maybe collecting stamps, maybe gardening or whatever. Vacation is a temporary diversion from your Uh, your occupation, your life, uh, your work, etc., that you leave for a week or you leave for a couple of weeks, you take a vacation. And then a vocation, or your calling would be, maybe my vocation is, uh, you know, I'm a teacher. Or I want to be a doctor. Or I want to be a builder. I want to be a farmer. And that's kind of your way of life. That's how you make your living. It's sort of your full-time Occupation. Vocation is a good term to describe our responsibilities in Jesus that Christianity is a vocation. Not a vacation we just do once or twice a year. It's not an advocation. uh, That is, we just do occasionally like a hobby. It's a vocation. Christianity is a vocation. It's 24-7, 365. That's what Christianity is. And that's what Paul describes here to begin with, that you walk worthy of the vocation. You're calling. We've been called to be Christians. We've been called to be servants of the Lord, to be followers of Jesus Christ. And that involves every day of the week, every week of the year, and every year of our life, day in and day out, that we uh, consider uh, being a servant of Christ. And then he talks about lowliness. I was uh, looking at uh, one Bible dictionary about lowliness, the idea of being humble or base. But uh, one dictionary says, having a humble opinion of oneself, A deep sense of one's littleness. We all are little when we compare ourselves to God. To one another, we're all equal. We have not talk about that. So how could I think that I'm better than somebody else? How could you think about yourself being better than somebody else? We can't. And then when we compare ourselves to any human being you want to talk about in the whole planet, the richest man on the earth, the smartest man, the smartest woman on the earth, the most talented people, it makes no difference. You just compare yourself and all your talents and abilities, and you just kind of size that up against God, and don't we all look pretty little? I think so. And so, therefore, the definition, a deep sense of one's littleness. That's why we walk humbly before God with lowliness. Never get the big head about ourselves. We have nothing to have the big head about when it comes to walking before our Maker. And then meekness. That's an interesting term. I like one dictionary I read several years ago on the explanation of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Sometimes people say, Oh, he's meek as a mouse. No, that's not that's not the way the Bible uses the term. For instance, there in Numbers chapter 12, in verse 3, it talks about Moses, that he was the meekest man upon the earth. Moses was a man of great strength and character. You put up with two or three million knotheads, you've got to see how strong you are to put up with that many knotheads that he did for for many years. But meekness is the ideal power under control. It doesn't take away one's strength. The illustration i I heard that really embeds in my mind the, the concept of, of biblical meekness. It's like if you go out west, there's some open ranges out there, and there are horses that actually run wild, and there are wild stallions. And you can go out there and capture one of those wild stallions, and boy, they, they, boy, it's hard to even get around them, and you keep them in the corral, but you keep working with them, and you talk to them, and finally you get a bridle upon their mouth. Well, you still you're not able to get upon them uh, and ride them, but you keep working with them and working with them, and finally you break the horse. And Now you can ride the horse. The horse is now meek. Question: Is the horse no longer strong? No, oh, horse muscles are just as strong as they've always been, even when it was wild. But now what's happened is, well, it's under control, and that's what God wants. He doesn't take away our strengths. He doesn't take away our passions. What he wants is meekness, that is, we bring it under control. That's the flavor of the term, of the term meekness. And then long-suffering, that's a word, just flip it around and you've got the definition, suffering long. Suffering long, long is, uh, one translation uh, gives it, long-tempered that is, we need long-suffering, suffering long. And there will be all kinds of examples like, for instance, teaching people the gospel. You know, sometimes it takes a lot of long-suffering in teaching. We think, you know, we have a study with somebody, we talk about some biblical concept, and it's like, why can't you see that? And we just get so impatient about that, and we just think, why don't they understand it? Well, you ever stop to think that maybe there's something that It took you a while to get. I remember when I first started studying the Bible, uh, one of the things that uh, I thought was okay was instrumental music and worship. I was learning the truth uh, and was attending at the uh, the Expressway congregation there in Louisville and obeyed the gospel, but I was still studying on, on that question. And I went for probably three or four months. I was reading everything and thinking of things, and I, I would come up with some argument, and I would go to services, and I would talk with maybe one of the sisters, one of the brothers, and, and I'd bring up some argument, and, and they would just patiently show me the, the fallacy and the argumentation of trying to justify and around on the music. Yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And then maybe I'd come up with something different, and I would talk about that. And then after about three months or so of studying this question, whether instrumental music is authorized in worship, I finally come to the conclusion that there's no Bible authority for it. Now here's the lesson. Now, if it took me three or four months to try to get that question settled in my mind, what about somebody else that you're studying it with? What about somebody that you're talking about? Baptism? Or you're talking about the Lord's Supper? Or you're talking about whatever the question might be, and if it takes. I know it took me about three months to finally get that question. Well, maybe it's going to take them three months or six months. You see the need for long-suffering, suffering long, and just patiently hang in there and give people a little time, a little space, and that's what long-suffering is all about. And then Paul talks about forbearance, forbearing one another in love. Well, forbearance is, a again, one of those terms you just flip it around backwards Bearing for, and you have a pretty good definition and a handle on the word. Forbearance. Sometimes we can kind of jump to conclusions, but maybe forbearance would, would help us. It's like the story I heard one time. This fellow, he was preaching in a meeting somewhere. First time he'd ever been to this congregation. And anyway, one of the elderly sisters walked out and said, Pew! And he didn't know really what to think. He thought, well... Man, my sermon stunk. What? Well, the next night, the little old lady walked in. So he asked the local preacher, "Said, who's that little old lady coming in there?" I said, "Oh, you mean Sister Pew?" <laughs> you see, the point is that you know we could kind of just jump to the gun there and just uh, try to make something that's not there. Maybe a little forbearance, uh, we will be enlightened. Forbearing one another. I mean, that could happen, somebody, some new brother, is, he leads prayer the first time and he says something a little bit off the wall. Well, do we jump on him like white on rice after services and just line him out? Well, I wouldn't think so. I think forbearance would come in that, well, we look for a good time, opportunity, to try to help that brother and help him understand and talk with him and to show him in a good way, considering his immaturity, forbearance. Preparing one another in love. Fundamental definition of love is goodwill. It is active goodwill. It is unconditional active goodwill. That, that is the full definition if you consider the idea of love. It is having goodwill toward others. You see, that's why Jesus can command us to love, and yes, even love enemies, because it is not a warm, fuzzy feeling that we have these warm, uh, you know, loving feelings. That's not the flavor. It's that we have goodwill, that we want good for even enemies. It's active, because then we're going to be praying for them, even an enemy. We're going to try to do them good when we have occasion. It's going to be unconditional, because it's not conditioned upon them. If we're only going to love those that love us or those that show us love and that's going to reciprocate love, well, what about loving enemies? They're not going to do us good. You see, that's why it is unconditional active goodwill that we love regardless. That that goodwill falls upon everybody is what the Scriptures declare unto us. And then he says, keeping the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit, he didn't say union. In sectarianism, they want to talk about union. And that is, what we'll just all agree that Jesus is Lord. And everything else, well, we can just differ. And, and uh, well, we'll just, we won't worry about that. Because we're all going to be under the general umbrella that Jesus is Lord. That's not what he's talking about. He didn't say union. That we just somehow... Under that general heading of Jesus, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, well, Jesus is Lord. We've got to concur to that. But there are other things that we must concur to also. He didn't say uniformity. Do you see a few people wearing blue tonight? Some people wearing red. I'm wearing brown. My wife's wearing black. We all we all didn't, get, we all didn't come in here in uniforms. You know, it's not uniformity that we're just a bunch of clones that in every matter, in every situation, we look the same. So he didn't say uniformity. He didn't say the unity of error, that we will just agree to disagree and we'll all just join hands and we'll all just be happy and we're all going to heaven anyway. That, that's not, the Bible doesn't talk about that either. No, he talks about the unity of the Spirit. Now, he talks about here in Ephesians chapter 4, he gives us the platform for unity in those seven comprehensive ones that are described there in verses 4 through 7. But before you get to 4 through 7, we've got these unifying attitudes that we've got to work on first and get our right attitude, so then we can talk about these seven comprehensive ones, the one Lord, the one faith, one baptism, etc. there. But that also needs to be pointed. It also needs to be pointed out. We've got passages like Romans 14. And we'll talk about that in the morning, because there are sometimes issues of personal scruple, personal opinion, personal conviction, where we will have uh, maybe even opposite dispositions and convictions, like Paul talks about the eating of meat or being a vegetarian, and yet that doesn't affect because each of us will answer individually. But it is the unity of the Spirit that we're all trying to just follow the teachings of the Scriptures. We're trying to stand together, to be united. So when the kids were little, there, there was one of the cartoon books called The Get-Along Gang. Well, that needs to be the disposition of the people of God that we want not be the get-along gang. We want to get along in truth and righteousness. In this platform for unity about the one body, the one Lord, one faith, etc., that is talked about here. We want to stand united upon what the Bible teaches of how we uh, work together and live together as the people of God. And then he says, keep the of Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace is tranquility. It is not just the mere absence of hostility, but true, true tranquility and harmony. That we want harmony, true peace and, and uh, in the body of Christ. And then he talks about, at the end of the chapter there, he talks about, and be ye kind one to another. Kindness. 100% of the time, always applicable. Applicable in the church, applicable in the family, applicable when you go down to to Walmarts. Did you catch that? (laughs) Walmarts? Walmart? Yeah. You're always kind. You're standing in line, Kroger, somebody cuts in front of you. Be kind. You're always kind. Kindness is always applicable. Kindness exemplifies itself in being polite, of being grateful, of being respectful to others. Kindness is is that wonderful disposition that that we ought to have in in every way. It reminds me of the story one time that uh, there was a a congregation up in Ohio. They were were kind of doing their own construction of what they could do among themselves in building the church building. And... uh, this, this one family that worked on it, uh, there a couple of people, they're putting drywall up in the stairwell. If you ever put drywall in the stairwell, it's really hard because you're dangling up maybe 18 feet. Well, somehow they just were unaware, but there was some wiring that had to be put in first. And they spent a lot of hours putting that drywall up. And then one fellow just comes in, Ah, oh, who did that? He just starts taking his claw hammer and, and crowbar and just starts ripping it out. And it's like, well, wait a minute. These people put a lot of effort in. I mean, you could have been a little bit kinder about it just to explain why this has to come back down to get the wiring in before you put the drywall up. But it didn't seem that kindness was there, but kindness is always applicable. And then he says, tenderhearted, compassion, mercy, those are wonderful dispositions that should always be. The parable of the sower, I mean, the parable of the Good Samaritan would certainly be an exemplification of being tender-hearted. The priest and Levite, they seen the man beat up over here. I mean, you've got the, you've got the thieves that beat him up and, and, and taking advantage. they living by the, the iron rule, might makes right, and what's yours is mine, I'm going to take it, that's the way they live. And then the priest and Levite, they seen him, it's not like they didn't see him. They saw him, but they didn't help. There was, no, there was no tenderness, no compassion, no mercy. And the Samaritan came and he showed compassion, certainly always an applicable, uh, beautiful quality to have. And then he says, forgiving one another, even as, just as, just as, Paul says, God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And you know, forgiveness is always a wonderful Quality to have. In fact, it's an essential quality when you talk about forgiveness. Because our forgiveness is predicated upon us being willing to forgive. Forgive us of our debtors as we forgive our debtors. You know, the day day that we stop forgiving better be the day that we stop sinning. Because when we decide we're not going to forgive somebody else, don't ask God, because God does not grant forgiveness. We have to be willing to forgive. We have to have that spirit of forgiveness that is talked about. Well, anyway, these are wonderful qualities over here, these good attitudes and these bad ones. you got to work on them. And it's like a lifetime, because, you know, you go through life, and you look at these various qualities, and in various circumstances of life, you know, we're going to have to go back to the drawing board, And see where we need to work on them, whether it's working on getting rid of these bad attitudes or putting in these good attitudes in various circumstances of life. As we go through life trying to be what God would have us to be, if we want to be a success and a servant of the Lord. Well, we extend the invitation of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Maybe there's one here even tonight the plan of salvation. And that's what we need salvation. We need forgiveness. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the problem of humanity. We, we, all, we all do wrong. But thank God Jesus came and died on the cross that we could be forgiven. And he tells us in his word what we need to do. Five steps that are listed there. That is, we hear this good news about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and what he did on the cross that makes our salvation possible. And if we'll be willing to believe that message with all our heart, willing to, to, to repent and then to confess and say, yeah, I believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God, unashamedly before man, and then to be baptized, immersed. Then we can be, become a Christian, be baptized into, body, into the body of Christ, find forgiveness of all our past transgressions, become a child of God, be born again, as the Bible talks about. And then if we're a Christian by the wayside, will we come back through repentance and prayer. We're going to sing the song to your encouragement. If there's one here, even tonight, and we could help or assist, you come and let us know. We'll be glad to do whatever we can to help you. While together as we stand and as we sing.